There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, it's Mike Calvin here. I've just heard about Ronald Coleman's sacking. It was announced about an hour or so after we recorded this episode. No real surprise, Everton have had little return on their £144 million summer investment. Too many Simba players, not enough quality to replace Romelu Lukaku. Coleman's man management has been poor. He's been tactically exposed. Confidence is shattered. Everton are in the bottom three. Put simply, that's not good enough. On with the show. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and David Priest, the former Aberdeen and Sunderland goalkeeper. Now, we all know that football management is a blood sport. Apparently, Slaven Bilic has two games to save his job at West Ham. Ronald McDonald would be a more popular Everton manager than Ronald Koeman. Leicester are looking for a new manager, while Mark Hughes is being booed at Stoke. The cull's coming, isn't it? It's that time of year, isn't it? I mean, it's, you always look at the transfer window as being the kind of main driver of these things, and we're now what, sort of seven or eight weeks away from it. It's, it's a time that if a club's going to try and invest and then change their fortune in the second half of the season, you really need to be looking at signings now. And I think that focuses clubs' minds about um, who they want in charge to, to try and keep them up or not. And... Um, that's what we're seeing in the Premier League at the moment. I think there will be a couple of departures um, over the next few weeks. I mean, Koeman and Mark Hughes, I think, are probably the most under threat. And, and you might actually say with, with good reason, because they've both been backed very substantially by their clubs and probably have squads that they can't excuse themselves out of and say anybody else put these squads together. It's their work. Well, let's look at Everton, David. You know, that squad... As much has been spent on that squad has been spent on Bayern Munich squad. Mm. So you've got to point the finger at the recruitment side of things, but the manager always will take the, take the can. Yeah, you're right, but it's it's, it's amazing what uh, what people could see in the summer is is bearing fruit now. The, the people thought that yes, there was some good signs in there that were getting the business done early, and you know, there was lots of pats on the back, but. There was lots of question marks over the, over, you know, the lack of pace and the buying similar sort of players and, and a lot of them untried. And the amount of players that's, that they, they signed as well, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. They're not going to gel straight away. But it just doesn't seem to be getting any better for them at all. And I think that um, Ronald, well, if he's given the time, he's, you know, he, he, he can turn it around. The players are good enough, but... I don't know. I don't they they were all over the place, weren't they, on, on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, you've got to think about clubs and their identities and, and Everton have always been, you know, principally, they call themselves a people's club. They've been a hard-working, passionate, 
fierce club, particularly at home, and that seems to have disappeared from the football. You know, to see supporters leaving 10 minutes from time, not even having the passion to stay and boo the manager, I mean, that, that's really unlike Everton. And they had that lack of edge to them, they had a lack of basic organisation. I read somewhere that Koeman, he substituted Ashley Williams at half-time, that's nine games out of 17 this season where he's made a half-time change, which is a, an admission he's got it wrong. Um, they seem to be drifting because nobody knows even now what he really thinks is best first team is, what, why the, the, the three number 10s that we've talked about were signed, what he wants to do up front, we're still not really sure. And then there's a mix of some really good young players coming through, but all these kind of experienced signings that he's made. So uh, it's another thing where you're not really sure what kind of identity of a team that he's, he's trying to put together. And all those things make it a worrying situation for Everton. Mm. I, mean, I mean, people keep going on about the, the money that they spent and, and the fact that uh, if, if people have successes here, well, they've got money to spend. But it, it's, it's an, a, an example of that if you don't spend it properly, then mm. it, it doesn't matter mm. how much you've got to spend. And yeah. that's the problem that brings the... He's got a great squad now together. He's got a big squad. It's just picking the right players. Mm. What, you've been in, in dressing rooms. What is the atmosphere like when... Th things are turning sour, do people start getting defensive and thinking about themselves? There is that, I and mean, then there's a lot of finger-pointing as well. I think that's... Um, you know, you look, you look at someone like uh, Ashley Williams, I think it's... You see the, the, the frustration getting mm. to him. Mm. I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, what happened with the fan hold and the kid. Mm. Uh, in, that was unreal, game. by the way. It, it? it was, but it, it, for me, I, I don't know, it's just, just the way I look at it, but the fact that he's got a, a, a lifetime ban from the stadium, no, and Ashley Williams <laughs> was the one who lost total control yeah. and inside the whole instance gets away with a yellow card. I don't know anything, anything will happen afterwards. But the frustration's there and it's it's seeping into the to the players now and, and I think it, it's... <sighs> Is that a player who sees the end of his career coming at him fast? Mm. No, I think I think it's a, just a, a... It's a player who's in trouble with his form mm. and... The frustrations are coming out in different ways, and you, you see that, in, not just in the way that he's playing, but the, he's sort of his whole demeanour. And I think it's uh, symptomatic of what's happening in Everton. I mean, David will know better than me, but but when any club makes a whole raft of signings at one time, when you look at the numbers, you know, seven or eight coming into a squad, I think that always changes the dynamic, doesn't it? And and, and when when there are new players coming into a kind of troubled situation, that it's got a knock-on effect. It's harder for them to find their feet, but also. They're not going to kind of rally around the cause in the same way that you know more established players are going to because they don't know what the cause is. Mm. So there's been a number of these things. Brendan Rodgers making seven or eight signings, getting sacked quite quickly afterwards. I think it was was it Harry Redknapp that did it at Spurs. You know, He's done it everywhere. Yeah, he? yeah. <laughs> did it at Derby. Uh, did it at Birmingham. But whenever there's a big clutch of signings, you've got to be careful about the dressing room dynamic because it, you, you can, less than last year, you can lose very quickly what you had. Because mm, that's the point you made right at the start. You know, what does a club represent? What is its identity? You've got the same issue at Leicester, haven't you? Absolutely. And, and I, I'm scratching my head now about what kind of club the owners there think Leicester are going to be. I mean, they had the template laid down by Nigel Pearson and, and Steve Walsh, which, which Ranieri built on. And the whole thing was this sort of underdog club that, that was, was overachieving to now sort of you know get rid of Shakespeare quite early in the season after doing pretty well last season anyway and look at people like Carlo Ancelotti and you know maybe Mancini I, I just don't quite see the fit there and, and I 
can't see the logic in it. Surely they know what got them the success in the first place. Mm. And surely they can also look at that group of players and think, well, we, the best players we've got are still the best players we had from 2015, 16. We know what works for them. But, you know, maybe success means that they, they, they can't quite see things like that anymore. Mm. It also begs the question, you know, if we're talking about managers leaving, you know, obviously Shakespeare's gone, what about the quality of the managers who are available? So let's take Everton as an example. David Moyes has been spoken about, which I'm sure John can talk to us about in, in a minute, but, you know, David Wagner's already been, been spoken of. Now, he's going to stay, he says, at Huddersfield for the rest of the season. It's all very well sacking someone, but you've got to get someone else in. Who are the natural candidates for a Leicester or for an Everton or for a West Ham? I think we look at Leicester, if they want to go down the same route that's got, that's got them mm. success, like, uh, like Jonathan says, you know. I mean, do you go for someone like Sam Allardyce? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's in, who's in that mould of uh, the team that they, they'd already built and they got the success on. I'm not sure about that. It, it depends, like Jonathan was saying, about where they want to go, where they see themselves. Do they still see themselves as that club that they've got the success from, from being hard work and playing a certain way? Or do you want to change? And we didn't see from Crystal Palace this year that they, they've got, if they're going to do that, they've got to give the next manager a, a bit more time to, to work with. Mm. What about David Moyes? I know you, you yeah. know him pretty well. Well, there's, there'd be a lot of logic in, in him going back to Everton from the point of view. He, he knows how it works. He, he kind of built the modern Everton to a large extent. He's still very closely you know, linked to Everton. He knows people there, follows them very closely. And I think he would do a good job. But my, my worry for him would be how the fans would receive it and maybe even how the media would receive it because we all like novelty in football and the modern fan particularly likes novelty and I, and I feel there would be an, a sort of negativity against that appointment from, from the start which um, given the experiences he, he had at Sunderland and Sociedad which ended up being very negative I don't think that would be a very good way for him to start the job I think if, if we could cut through all of that look at it logically it would be a good appointment but we, the media and fans, do influence um, the conditions in which people work. I think with Everton, with D- if they appointed David Moyes, I'd always say that as a short-term mm. answer, really. Un- until they knew exactly where they wanted to go. and Because they've got the finances now. They've got the, they've got the leeway to, to have a vision and to be able to build something really solid. So they, they need to make sure that they, they get the next appointment or the, the, you know, if it's Moyes, it's going to be a short-term appointment the next appointment, that make sure that it's long-term and not just uh, not just flavour of the month, like, like David Wagner. Mm. Yeah, because the nature of management has changed since Moyes went into yeah. Everton. Yeah. Was, you know, he came in as that sort of classic guy who'd learned his trade in his lower divisions and then got his chance. A club with Everton's pretensions yeah. will want showbiz. That's, I know that's exactly right. And, and, and they'll also want the manager to be a bit of a star. And I think that's been a trend, maybe started back and when Mourinho arrived and he gave us almost this kind of film star manager idea and, and that is against the traditional British manager I feel I mean the, the, I think there's three outstanding candidates at the moment it's, it's whether you can get them from clubs but I mean Marco Silva mm. obviously has, has got something special and, and the way Sean Dyche has built Burnley he may not play sexy continental football but it's, the football's better than people think and, and if you're looking at someone to build an entire club and focus it. And, and I do think David Wagner has got an outstanding TV. And I know there's a, there's a flavour of the month element to it, but it's pretty outstanding what he's done at Huddersfield. It, it's whether 
it's whether clubs, whether you could attract them at this point of the season. And actually, you know, things are going pretty well for all of them at their current clubs. They might look at an Everton or a Leicester and just think, you know what, I, I might only get six months there. Whereas I've got clubs, they've all got clubs where they could stay for the long term. Well, maybe, it's <laughs> rubbish because Watford will sack anyone tomorrow. But, <laughs> but the other two have certainly got clubs. They Although, I, speaking to people around that club, you know, there is a sense that, you know, that's a club has been defined in another generation by, say, a Graham Taylor, mm. where he actually reshaped the club. I, I get the sense that they're going to try and give Marco Silva that type of chance to make an impact. I've got so many people telling me, you know, this is a mini Mourinho we've got here. Yeah, I mean, supported quite a lot of Hull players last season and they were telling me about his methods and how sort of precise he was with it. even going through training sessions. The training sessions would be videoed and then they'd go and watch the videos and he'd even point out if somebody was a yard uh, out, of, out of place. He knew exactly, he wanted the players to know exactly what, where they should be stood on the pitch, wherever the ball was, where they had the ball and whether they didn't have the ball. So it, it, it just all, um, it's everything that's, that, that football's about at the moment. Football's moved on so much in the last six mm. or seven years. Mm. And we, you know, we're talking about David Moyes. That's why people like him have been, have seemed to have been left behind, because it has moved on. And it's there's a, there's a way of doing things now which is so precise and so intricate, and there's so much work goes into it that people like uh, like, like Silva, he's that's why he's become a success. And I think, yeah, I think it'd be it, it, for, for some like Everton, it'd be, yeah. it'd be great, mm. great fit. It was interesting. I, I spoke to a, a former Premier League manager last week who's unemployed, right. uh, you know, so he's doing the rounds. And he he basically said the one thing that he's learned in the time that he's been out is that the way the foreign coaches prepare themselves for interviews. He said yeah. they go in there, it's all singing, all dancing. He knows. You know, knows the name of the left back's cat. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's brilliant preparation. Yeah. That's what the traditional yeah. English manager or British manager is up against. Yeah, you, you're talking about job interviews, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's it. That, it. Again, that's a Mourinho thing. He famously came with his 150-page dossier for Brendan Rodgers. Did the Brendan Rodgers? Well, he, yeah. People Liverpool. say that he nicked Mourinho's dossier and that Mourinho nicked Van Gaal's dossier, but that's another map. But but that's that is the kind of level of that. That's the brand of the foreign manager. Now, and, and that also tells you that these guys are looking at the Premier League from afar and thinking, we really, really want to work there. Like Thomas Tuchel is, is one mm. who obviously comes to mind. Well, he'll probably turn up with perfect English and he'll tell you that he's, you know, we'll find out that he's spent six months in Bath or something studying English culture. But that's what these guys do now. Think of Guardiola going away and, you know, spending a year living, and learn English in pre preparation for a job. I think he always knew he was going to mm. come and do one day. Um, but ultimately, David, it's a mad job, isn't it? They're, they're judged by people who really aren't qualified to make those sort of judgments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're right, but I mean, it's that's the, the chance you take. You, you know, when you're going into the job, you know that's that's what's going to happen to you. And you can understand why the likes of Michael Appleton, you know, asked, he's asked him about the lesser job yesterday. You can see why, and truthfully, he answer it saying that I'd rather stay in the job that I'm in at the moment. I thought that was a smart answer, though. Yeah, exactly, because it's you know, it's non-committal. Of course, I think you know whether privately or not, he he would want the job, and I'm sure he would if he was given it. He'd take it tomorrow. But uh, you, you, sometimes you're better off staying at that level and, and giving yourself more security because it's obviously there is none at that level. Mm. I, I was at Stoke on Saturday, mm. and you know, for a team that spent about 100 million pounds, mm. they went back to the plan. Z option of just lumping it to Peter Crouch in the second half 
A lot of unhappiness about Mark Hughes. Now, I think he's done a fantastic job there when you think about it. Ninth three seasons on a row. I think it was 13th last season. OK, they're in a bad run at the moment. This, Is that enough? Well, this goes back to the whole... Uh, we've talked about that in this podcast before, but the, the kind of mid-ranking club and the, the kind of angst of the mid-ranking club's supporter. You know, what do they actually want? West Brom managers find it difficult, for example, because finishing 10th has become boring to the fans. And I think that's the case with Stoke. The, the, the problem that Mark Hughes has got is that every one of the last three or four seasons has followed the same pattern, which is summer investment, things are going to be better, we're going to progress, start the season badly, pulls it round, which he probably will or would if he stays for the season. But at some point... Um, Fans get bored, they want something different. They might look at Leicester, they might look at the excitement that Silva's generating at Watford and feel feel envious, for example. I mean, specifically on Hughes, I don't think he's invested very well this summer. Mm. Um, and I don't think he invested very well last summer. And as you say, it is a worry when the best players there are still the players that were there, maybe from the Pulis era, you know, Showcross and Couch, you know, the, the guys that you can rely on. So that's a worry for him. It's the curse of Kirbishley, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, when that's it all it. really. That's, it, isn't that's it? when it all started um, for me in the Premier League. You know, mm. when they, they they have the the relative success, mm. but fans are always going to want more once they get to that level and they sort of the club plateaus. Mm. It's an emotional business, but let's talk about an emotional club, Liverpool. At what stage do we turn around to Jurgen Klopp and say, "Some of this is down to you, mate." Mm. Yeah, I know he got. He seemed to get a little bit upset yesterday when he was questioned about uh, the defensive performances and says, you know, that's not the pretty justifiable question. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of, 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 yeah, of course it was. And you think from uh, somebody who was a centre half himself, you know, mm. he he kind of uh, sarcastically said, yeah, I know how to set up defence, and he should do. But the, the the fact of the matter is that they're letting him down consistently. Now, even yesterday, you know, you look at the, you can see it's you know, point the finger at the end, uh, Lovren and make him a scapegoat if you want, but it's, it's a collective yeah. calamity. Mm. You know, even some like uh, Joe Gomez, he, he's a centre-half mm. playing right-back. Now, to me, you can see that. Yeah. That's the second time yesterday that he's been caught a little bit too far behind his centre-halves, playing everyone on side. Even though it's, it's minimal, mm. it still makes all the difference and costing them a goal. And the fact that he's a centre-half, normally with full-backs, they, they're a little bit more advanced than the centre-halves, so it allows Lovren to play offside, which he tried to do. You know, if you're behind your centre-half, you know, you, Lovren's he's trying to play offside for the first goal and it's, uh, it, it, it obviously hasn't worked, but it's, it's the collective. Now, once people start making bad decisions like that and they're out of sync with each other, then it affects the goalkeeper as well. You know, mm. He's obviously making bad decisions at the same time. So it, it's all linked. Is Mignolet good enough for Liverpool? Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. For them to, be, to go where they want to go and get back to the top, no. It's as simple as that. You don't make that many mistakes and and win things, in all honesty. And I think that as much as, as Klopp says, it's you know it, it's individual mistakes and it, it's nothing that he can work on. Mm. Surely there must be time spent on repetition, 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 mm. so all the players know exactly what they're doing with each other. They need to get the George Graham rope out, don't they? Between the back four, they need a number of things. Yeah, they need to. They patently need to work on defending, and and that might not necessarily even mean the tactical side of things, the drilling side of things, just the mindset 
I think that's one of the aspects of Liverpool that has troubled me for not not just in Klopp's era but in Rodgers' era as well. That quite, there's some parallels, aren't there, between yeah, the two? coaches that have fallen in love with the attacking side of the game, the the, the passion side of the game, the entertainment side of the, of the game, giving thrills to everybody. But that's that's fine. But regardless of individuals, you don't see any of the defenders really committing to the job and and enjoying defending in the way that you know the, the, the Jamie Carragher's used to do and and I think Mignolet is probably substandard as David said for you know a top four club he's not a bad goalkeeper per se but he's not a top four goalkeeper but you could say that of any of those defensive players all of the fullbacks you know all of the centre-halves I don't think I don't think they would be signed up by the Liverpool's rivals any of them if they're placed in the open transfer market and that's a really bad comment mm. as a goalkeeper David playing behind a defence which is making consistent repetition of you know, individual errors. Does it get into your head in the end? Well, as you said, it, it affects your decision-making and it, it affects the positions you take up as well. I think even the, with the, was it the first goal when um, Mignolet came? It comes Russia, out, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's the fact that, oh, that, that it's not a strong line that's held. You know, people try to play offside in very tight positions when the, you know, when the, it, it, it's not like there's no, pre, uh, there's a great deal of pressure on the ball. That makes a difference as well. And I think when. So is that him trying to be assertive because nobody else is doing it? Is he trying to take charge of the situation by rushing out there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we watched it last week with, uh, with Peter Schmeichel talking yeah. about taking a high line and, and being more proactive and. But sometimes, I mean, in that case, I think Matip was getting across. He was co he covered the run. He shouldn't have been out there at all. And the, the, there was no chance of him getting to the ball first. He's putting himself in danger, putting his teammates in danger. And that said, it just it, it affects everybody. So it's it's you can you can't point your finger just one person. Would you blame him for the the, the, the header, the Matip header, which you know he heads it back to to Deli Ali to score? Should Minnelli not have been shouting, you know, leave it or keep his ball, or is that is that a Matip problem or? Well. Like I said, with, with goalkeepers having their position in relation with the defence, they were really high there. Yeah. Mm. Really high, and there's no need for them to be. There was no sort of, they didn't send the big guns up. Um, so they, they didn't need to be so high and, and, and keep them away from the box. But if they're going to do that, then the goalkeeper has to be behind them in relation to that and start uh, mm -hmm. have a better starting position. Mm. Let's talk about man management. It's something that we've all said that Klopp is very good at. Yeah. In his handling of Lovren there, uh, Paul Hayward in The Telegraph came out with a great line this morning where he talked about not so much a substitution but an evacuation. <laughs> when you're hooked after half an hour, yeah, that basically is a relationship ender, isn't it? It can be. And um, I think Peter Schmeichel was saying yesterday that he felt that was a manager trying to absolve blame from himself by letting the world see it's this individual's fault, which is um, almost betraying a player. I have to say that you can, you can also just look at it as a straightforward football decision and say the guy was dreadful. Mm. And were they going to concede more goals with him on the pitch? Probably. I mean, it, there was a logic to it as a football decision. Lovren's quite an emotional character. He's, he's a bright lad, but, but quite a sensitive lad. So I think there will be a lot of work for Klopp to do there. But he's also had injury issues as well, hasn't he? He said he's been yeah. playing with pain for quite a while. Yes, and he's had various difficulties in his time. I mean, he, you know, he, before Klopp arrived, he was, he was the scapegoat in the last year's 
weeks of Rogers. You know, he was he was having a real sort of crisis then, and and you know, Klopp sort of revived his Liverpool career. So he's kind of back in in the position that he was a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, I I felt that a bit like we're seeing with Mignolet, where he's maybe overdoing it to try and assert himself. I thought Lovren's mistake for the when he missed the header. That was somebody just thinking, oh, i got to do something and, and, and making a really daft decision. But I could see where it was coming. It was an emotional decision. It wasn't a clear-headed bit of, dis- bit of defending. That's the job. It's, it, he's got to take the emotion away from Lovren. Mm. We mentioned Brendan Rodgers there in passing. Could you ever see him coming back to any of these jobs which might become available in the next few weeks? No, but that's simply for the fact that I think he's just been loving life in Scotland so much. You know, the Celtic suits him, the ethos of the club. He's winning things. Um, he's getting getting a lot of adulation. Mm. Um, the only one thing is that it probably, I mean, the fact that they're unrivaled, particularly by Rangers at the moment. You know, he's just loading it up there in Glasgow. Mm. And at the moment, you know, he's playing Champions League football as well. Uh, he's still getting some credit over the last in the last two seasons. Uh, put some good performances in against Manchester City and Barcelona. So it's I, I don't see why he would. And he's young, Brendan. He's he, I think he's a very early forties, so he can he can maybe think I'll take three or four years more in Scotland, get ten in a row, get my statue outside Celtic Park, and he'll still only be mid forties when he comes back to England. Mm. I think the fact that if he does wait another couple of years, another couple of titles. Maybe a few more good results in mm. in the Champions League. You know, his stock will be even higher, so he can wait for for a better job to come along than the mm. ones available. Okay, well, this is you know this is real speculation. But how about in a couple of years, he goes to Tottenham because Mauricio Pochettino has gone to Manchester United. Well, I know exactly what you're saying, Mike. I mean, Pochettino to me has looked like a Manchester United manager for a few years now. I think Mr Mourinho's noticed that as well, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think it won't, it won't have escaped Mourinho, that dinner that Fergie had with, with Pochettino that was, oh, we're just getting to know each other. I mean, that, that was a little bit politically interesting. Um, the thing about Pochettino is he, he's shaming pretty much every manager in the Premier League at the moment, with the exception of, of Guardiola. And he, he looks like a, I mean, he might be a perfect fit for Real Madrid. You know, he's, do, he's doing that. He needs to win something. But Manchester United, if they want to, may have to move a bit more quickly than wait in a couple of years. Mm, yeah, sometimes, as a neutral, just like to watch a certain team, I, you know, I don't know what you think, David, but I just love watching Tottenham as, as they're playing now with that sort of natural vivacity. Yeah, I think they're, they're the team I've watched most this year. I've probably watched them four times this season. Mm. And it, the thing about Wembley, I know we, people keep talking about, but gradually they are feeling more at home. And I think, uh, I mean, it's quite telling that the, both the sides that they've they've scored more than two goals against, or more than one goal against, even has been uh, Dortmund and Liverpool. Yeah. Two teams who really come at you. They, they've not respected the way that Tottenham play. They left a lot of space in behind, and, and they've and they've, uh, they've suffered for it. Mm. But I think you're right. I mean, I think in the end it'll suit them because they, they, what, what's tend to happen with uh, with teams who've dropped off them the full backs are, t- are too high up the pitch they they're already in the space that they want to run into but what's happening now you see likes of Ericsson doing what Kevin De Bruyne mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. He's, he's practically going back into a right back position to pick up the ball and to create stuff and I think they're just slightly changing the way that they play I think they still play their usual game away from home like they did at Goodison Park they st- and, and press people into space and um, and, and deny them um, the time of the ball but when it comes to Wembley, I think the, the, the way they're changing, the, the way they mm. play, it's, it's going to suit them more. And, and we hear managers moaning about you know, injuries. Um, Conte, Mourinho are at it. 
But he was playing with Serge Aurier in, in a completely unfamiliar role, out of position. He's playing with Harry Winks in, in central midfield. No other manager, no other top manager would be would be playing with Harry Winks in central midfield at the moment, which is fantastic for Harry Winks in English football. But he's doing things that, as I say, put other managers to shame. Mm. Do you think that City are, they've got one challenger and that's not Man United, it's actually Tottenham? It's a bit early to say United are busted flush, um, but I, would, I wouldn't put them any... F- further ahead than Tottenham as challengers to City and it already looks like for someone to challenge City, City are going to have to blow up a little bit because nobody's on their level uh, squad strength the football they're playing so they're going to have to mess it up somehow I think even now you can see that What's most interesting about Manchester City's situation is it's not actually about them mm. the way I look at it, it's about how other teams cope with them and how they set up to try and stop them, I mean at the start of last season people kind of just they, they, they got into the season and just stood yeah. off them a little bit and waited yeah. to see what happened. And then when, obviously, they, they saw a weakness in, in John Stones when he wasn't playing well in Bravo, they went for the throat and they, they kind of pressed them high. Nobody's really actually done that to them yet. Nobody's tried to sort of nullify um, Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah. But having said that, they've got so many options. You know, it's almost like you've got half a dozen leaks and a dam, and you're trying to fill. Them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Once you once you fill it with one thing, you know, another one sprouts somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see what other managers do with them. What about Edison? You know, he's eight clean sheets, yep. which is only one less than uh, Bravo's total for the entire season <laughs> last season. He's out Neuering Neuer as a as a sweeper keeper. He, he's actually, funnily enough, not got the credit perhaps that he deserved. He's been well. I mean, it has to be said, he's been well protected as well. They, they've they've <coughs> conceded very few chances. Mm. Uh, probably, I think it's the second least amount of yeah. shots in the league that they've they've conceded. But when when they have come in, he's he's been there and he's dealt with them well. He's aggressive when the balls come in the box, high balls and crossing the box. He's very aggressive, um, and with through balls as well, we've seen that. And his distribution is is almost flawless. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't go through the season without having three, four, maybe five assists. I mean, you look, you look at Joe Hart the other week. You know, he got a lot of plaudits for lumping the ball up the pitch and it end up in, at somebody's feet and them scoring. Mm. But he's actually doing a lot with intent. Uh, and they've, now they've got the players who can do that. As soon as they get the ball, they just like the red arrows just sprinting forward. Mm. Yeah, they're lovely to watch, aren't they? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, they're 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 just an. Absolute joy. I was I was sitting at the Napoli game last week, trying to draw little diagrams of uh, you know the positions that City were taking up on the pitch because the shapes are unlike anything I've I've seen. I didn't watch Pep's Bayern Munich closely or, or, or Barcelona, so maybe it's old hat if you're a real Guardiola sort of scholar. But yeah, they they they, they they're just. You know, as David talking about De Bruyne, the positions he takes to to get the ball, uh, the the aggressiveness, the the the, the how far forward they get, how many men they get forward. Um, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And they've always got someone in space to receive the ball. They've got so many players that, that can hurt you. Uh, and then the pace of that front line as well. That's, you know, Rio Ferdinand's that's the fastest front line in, in, in world football at the moment. When it's Jesus, Sané and Sterling, he's probably right. There's so many things. It shows you how we've been brought up as footballers and, and, and football fans. It's, sometimes I get palpitations when I watch them passing the ball at the back. Mm. It's almost like in a small-sided yeah. game in training, they take all those positions mm. where, <laughs> you don't know, 10, 20 years ago, you think, oh, I'm never giving a player a ball there. But they trust each other implicitly, and they're still going to give away chances. They give yeah. away a ch- big chance against Napoli, yeah. and they got away with it. They're still going to do that. 
but the acceptance that they will do it is there by the manager, so it gives them confidence, mm. but also they, they get more comfortable themselves with it. And there's there's no sort of uh, trepidation, you know, mm. every pass is firm and they, they, and they trust each other with it. Napoli's the one team that troubled them. They did in the second half and they kind of did it by out-citying City. They, they, they stayed with them physically, they pressed them as hard as City pressed the opposition. So Spurs are the only team that can do that in the Premier League if we're looking at head-to-heads. Mm. If you look at Arsenal, they're, they're being Arsenal at the moment, aren't they? You know, <laughs> they disappoint, then suddenly they'll put up with a performance like they did at Everton, which disarms you again. Yeah. Think about Arsenal. They've still got a high number of really brilliant footballers. They've got some mediocrity there as well, mm. but they've got so many good players. If you're Wenger, do you sell Ozil to Man United in January to get some money in? I mean, the argument against would be that you don't sell your rival, but are Manchester United Arsenal's rival at the moment or are Arsenal trying to get back in the top four? I don't know why you didn't sell them in the summer. Um, but but if, if you are going to obviously cash in, you have to do it in, in January. Uh, if he's got someone to bring in, yes. But if it's just going to be to collect another 30 or 40 million to put in that gigantic sort of transfer piggy bank. piggy bank that he's got then what's the point yeah uh, would you agree with that yeah I would I mean as long as it's not like uh, somebody's not taking the mickey with uh, you know a really derisory mm. offer mm. You know, they, they, they should take it's, it's the type of club Arsenal are you know they, they're not wanting to waste money um, and I think they'd, mm. they'd welcome it and you're right to say about mm. are, are, they, are they really the rivals mm. yeah but that that if you look at that front three yesterday, first time they played together this season, Ozil, Lacazette, Sanchez, yeah. not bad. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of Oliver Giroud, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think yeah, he's not that he's underrated, but I think a lot of people give him undeserved criticism. But you're right, those three, if you think they can keep those three fit and play them, they're going to cause teams to have a lot of problems. Mm. And sure that the other day. What about Chelsea, Johnny? Because... Mm. You've got Conte being backed into a corner by Mourinho. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've got uh, Raymond Verheyen, <laughs> you know, the fitness coach, lambasting yeah. him and Klopp for basically over-fatiguing their teams through their training methods. Something's still not right there, is there? No, and I mean, if, if you can have a bad 4-2 win, they had a bad 4-2 win <laughs> on, on Saturday. Um, Conte's demeanour's not right. You can see the holes in the system that wasn't there before. You look, they look tired, and, and, and that goes back to Conte's Juventus. If you look at what happened to Juventus in the Champions League under Conte, they were really poor in Europe. They kept winning the domestic title, but they were really poor in Europe. So he's, he hasn't ever been able to do you know, both at the same time, succeed at both at the same time, the two games a week. So maybe that does speak of his, his training methods. I mean, I, I don't know how Raymond Verheyen thinks he knows better than... He knows everything. He knows everything. I don't know. I'm not on the training ground, but nor is Raymond Verheyen. However, from the outside, they do look they do look tired. They do look like they've got problems. I think when it comes to fatigue, especially mental fatigue, it, I think it's, it, it, it's not the end of the season. This it, it isn't mm. February, March, April. You know, players are still fresh. Injuries and aren't taking the toll on people now. I think so. It's to say that it's it's simply down to fatigue. I think it's. I don't think it's a it's a it shouldn't be a problem at the moment. Not for these players. When you think of the the the, re, the recoveries that they have now, the medical staff that they have, and they make sure that players are already. Maybe it's only from Wednesday to Saturday. Maybe it's not 100 percent, but they're they're in they're still in great shape and good enough to to play on a Saturday. Difficult club to manage, Chelsea, isn't it? Oh yeah. I, I mean they they. There's that statistic about how the, the last five 
five of the last seven Premier League winning managers have, have, have got the sack the season after. I, mean, I think Chelsea account for more than half of that, and they might they might add to that tally by the end of the season. It, it, you never, I just don't think you ever quite feel that you're in charge, and that's what's nagged at Conte because he, after last season, he expected to assert himself over the summer with transfers and this and that, and that's just not how Chelsea works. You, you are the hired help. Mm. On some uh, questions from the, the viewers and listeners. Uh, there's a United thing to the first couple of questions. Um, you're going to be seeing United against Spurs on, yep. on Saturday, which is one of those pivotal games, yep. isn't it? Uh, Phil Parkinson, I assume it's not the, uh, the <laughs> Bolton manager, he said, should you think twice about signing a centre-back from a Portuguese club? He then makes a, a pun on the uh, Mendes, Mendicious, <laughs> but he says there always seems to be a hype around them. Yeah, I, I like this question. Um, Portuguese clubs, not just it's not just the George Mendes thing, actually. You look at how Porto operate, uh, how Benfica operate. They're, they're brilliant sellers into the, into the wider European market. They, they, they make that a business model. They're very good at marketing their players. And I think you should be careful about buying from Portuguese football. Um, you look at Mangala, came from Porto with great reputation. Um, you know, obviously undeserved. Lindelof looks like looks out of water at the moment. Um, and this this struck me a few years ago. I went to, I was in Portugal and I had a few hours to kill before getting a flight home. So I just went to a Portuguese league game, and I must admit I was stunned. It was just a mid-ranking match, and I was stunned at how small scale it was. It was it was sort of six or seven thousand people there. The standard was kind of League One-ish, but without the passion. Of, of the support this isn't me saying that Portuguese football is rubbish it's obviously not but I think it's a bit like the Dutch league where there are great sort of differences between the top teams and, and the rest and, and the point I just want to make is that I think we sometimes ignore what's in our own championship or, or, or league mm. one and think that it's always better out there in, in abroad I mean the, the fourth place team at the moment in Portugal is Maritimo who get about 6,000 a week and Apart from when you're playing against Benfica and Sporting and Porto, you're going to play most of the season against these guys. So it's just a point that I think we overhype foreign signings a lot without being knowledgeable enough about where they've come from. And, and do we overlook the fact, David, that there is, in some cases anyway, a difficult transitional period? So maybe you've got to judge someone on a second season. You know, Otamendi is almost looking like a decent defender <laughs> at the moment, which is against all the odds when you consider how he played last season. Lindelof, will he get better given time and patience? Yeah, I'm sure he will. But the, the transfer fees don't, mm -hmm. don't allow time. You know, you, the way people see it now, you know, the way everyone sees it, it's 30 million, 40 million. You expect the, you know, sort of, sort of buying, off the, buying off the rail, like, you know, you expect the, your suit to fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and you expect them to, to hit the ground running and, and, and perform well. And he's right, but because of all the, the money that and the, the, the pound signs that, that people see, that's all they see. They don't see the human aspect of that. The, you know, the, the being able to transition into, into a different way of life, you know, being away from your family for the first time, especially for young guys as well. Mm. So, you know, like, like somebody like Gabriel Jesus, for him yeah. to come in and perform the way he has, it's miraculous, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. Ian Hamilton says, instead of criticising Man United, should they be praised? Uh, <laughs> no. Last season, he points out, we had lost three games by now. Is that fair? 
Well, what, where, where's he setting his bar? What's his expectations at Manchester United? I mean, they're doing well, better than their mediocre season last season. Well done. But um, they've spent so much money. This is Mourinho's second season. He's been able to build the squad. And to be fair, Mourinho, he's never tried to dampen expectations. He said from day one he's there to win the title. So it's absolutely fair to criticise him for a really unambitious performance at Liverpool and for losing Huddersfield. If we're going to let Man United away with that, then you know I think we're being very generous. Mm. Yeah, it shouldn't be judged against Van Gaal or, or Moyes' no. time at United. No. Everyone's going to be judged by Sir Alex Ferguson's yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, and when you look at those two performances that um, you refer to, Johnny, how much does Mourinho's attitude shape those two performances? I know he blamed his players in that for not showing requisite passion. In the, uh, the Champions League game and the, and the Huddersfield game. game. Yeah, but sometimes it's hard to, hard to shake the, the attitude from, or the, the way you're going to play against Liverpool. It's hard to shake yeah. that because it's, for him, it was, a, I mean, it was a success. And when he went back in the dressing room after the game, I, th I still think he'll have impressed on the players that that's, this is the way I wanted to play. Didn't want to lose. If we won the game, brilliant. But this is what I went for. And over the course of the season, this, this, is, this is where I've plotted it. I plotted us for, to have a draw. So it's to, to change that sort of mindset and, and break out of that again, it just hasn't happened this week. And all right, against Huddersfield, you know, you give Huddersfield a lot of credit. But I think uh, you know, Benfica side that uh, they had a young goalkeeper mm. and the fact that they have to rely on targeting a mm. young goalkeeper making his debut in the Champions League, mm. it, it speaks volumes. Owen uh, has come on uh, saying, with all the three newly promoted sides starting well, were we wrong to write them off or will they still go down? Oh, it's a good question because we've seen this before from promoted sides who maybe run out of steam in the second half of the season mm. when everyone else has worked out their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, I didn't write off any of those sides, I have to say. Um, you know, Brighton, really solid manager, been building for a number of years, been a good side for a number of years. The quality of Rafa Benitez speaks for itself. And, you know, David Wagner as I said earlier, has done such a brilliant job, but you knew that that was a club that had that small-town uh, first season in the Premier League passion about it, like a Burnley a couple of years ago, that they were going to be really difficult to beat at times. So I, I wouldn't have written any of them off. I'm not surprised by how they're doing. Mm. You see a lot of Newcastle, David. What's your impression about the way that Rafa's working it there? <sighs> He's done brilliantly. I mean, it, it, when he first went in there, I've said, that, said this openly, that I expect him to have, in, have them in this position. As long as they backed him with, mm -hmm. in the transfer market, which they did the, when he, in the start of last season, not so much this year. But if they backed him, then he'd have them up there in the top eight, almost top six, where, where they've been sitting now mm -hmm. uh, on Saturday. And I think that, especially with the, the group of players he's got, the, you know, a lot of young players, they perform really well. And sort of, they've all sort of bought into it. You know, they, they've bought into the to what the club is, the bottom to where the Rafa does does it uh, goes about his work, and I think that it's it, it's it's a bit there's, there's a lot of optimism up there at the moment, so, and not just because of the takeover, but the fact that you know that the Rafa, he's seen it the same way as he's seen Liverpool. You know he's bought he's bought in the club as well. You, we've got uh, Paul Fry, yeah, as noticed, he, a, a decent player called Lionel Messi. <laughs> is he the greatest or not? And will we ever produce a player to match or eclipse him? Uh, I think that I'm afraid the second part of that is probably a no. Is he the greatest ever? I, 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 the question always troubles me just because we, we, we've got this thing in the modern world we want to 
brand people the greatest straight away. I, I, I always look at Pele as a benchmark, you know, World Cup final at 17, brilliant player who, who won Brazil a World Cup as a teenager, 17 year old, and does it again at the age of 30, scores 1200 goals, redefines football, you know, gives football part of it, the global profile that it's got. I don't know how much more Pele could have done in his career, quite frankly, than, than that. So brilliant as Messi is, and has been, I judge him at the end of his career against the body of work that, that Pele put together. Isn't that fair, Dave? Yeah, I think so, but there's, there's also going to be this, um, I don't know, like, like an aura about the likes of Pele and, and Maradona in, in Christ to a certain extent, how they, the way they influenced the game. Yeah. And uh, with, with Messi, there's always been this rivalry with Ronaldo, they've been pushed against each other and they've pushed each other on to, to make each other better players. But uh, when it comes to the end of his, uh, his career, and people talk about is he the, the world's greatest, people are always going to point to the World Cup, and if he hasn't won the World Cup by the end of his career, then it's always going to be, uh, be held against him. Okay. I want the final discussion, quite a brief one, to be about the FA. <laughs> Dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Uh, I'll set it out with a question from Martin Calladine. Greg Clark claimed that, organisationally, the FA has gone from three out of ten to six out of ten. Do we buy that? And what would it take to hit ten? Can these executives in charge do that? I think Greg Clark's right. It probably has gone from three to six. What troubles me is how smug Greg Clark seems to be about that and how, how empowered the FA executive think they've done a few good things to, a, to an ancient, unwieldy organisation, but there's so much more to do. I think there's a lack of talent at executive level, to be honest. I think the big, the big question that they were posed of, of, to do with institutional racism and, and how you handle your employees. I think they failed on it really badly over the Enya Luko affair. To get to 10 has to be a lot more change, a lot more diversity at the top and probably a bit more talent. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But also, if you look at the situation that the FA are in, are they almost like reflecting the failures of the system? It's still, despite all the money that's gone into it, it's still an old boys club. Yeah, and I think... Uh place with uh, was it Greg Clark who was saying that he it's almost like he's doing the, the FA a favour or he's doing, yeah. he's doing, well, he's doing a, a solid like favour that whole parliamentary inquiry was riddled with ignorance and arrogance it's almost like it's a it's an imposition on like you know it's it's it, it's a bit of a bother oh, I don't really need this you know it's going to kill my career it's, 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 yeah exactly <laughs> it's too, hopefully it's yeah. too much trouble you want you want somebody who's at the the, the forefront of the of the, the English game, who's got a passion for it, who who loves the job and wants to to uh, to improve the game, and uh, and and be, you be able to see that his love of the game through that, he just didn't get that at all, and that was really worrying to me, really worrying. Mm. Well, how can the FA run football when they can't run themselves? They have no credibility under their current leadership. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.